Well, I got good news, or it might be bad. It's probably, it's, I think it's good news. This is it. This is it, folks. Herb's back next week. And if Herb's not back, it's someone else. Because I'm not here next week. Whew. They say you're not supposed to blow into a microphone like that, but I just needed that sigh. Everybody, who else needs, all right, everybody, one, two, three. Doesn't it feel good to just let out? I came in this morning with a little bit of uh, weight, a little bit of burden, a little bit of stuff I'm working through, and I'm sure some of you guys did too. And what I love about God is he creates opportunities to free us of those burdens. Sometimes we got sticky fingers, and we like to hold on to stuff. That's why I love that 25, 30-minute worship time is it really gives us the opportunity to say, all right, here, God. And then after the first song, if we're like, oh, but I still want a little bit of it, he gives us a second song to say, all right, all right, fine, here, God. And then sometimes we pull back again. And today we got five songs of reminder, of praise to say, God, everything I have is yours. Take it and work. So I was just so grateful for the worship team. Um, they're incredibly talented, uh, and God just uses them tremendously. So last week we started a short series on Titus. Uh, and as we dive into the final chapter of Titus, I want to actually take a step back, reintroduce all of the parties involved, and what this letter is all about. Because Paul, see, Paul wrote this letter to Titus. And Paul, we know, was an apostle of Christ. He's writing this letter to who? Titus, who is his co-laborer. He is a mentor of sorts, a disciple of sorts. See, Titus was a Greek non-Jewish follower of Christ who had served alongside Paul and has now been sent out by Paul to Crete. Now, we said last week, Crete is a difficult place to start a church um, because it's by no means a Christ-centered culture, a Christ-centered community. It's a commerce-fueled community with multiple ports. So lots of people in and out. Uh, lots of people traveling all over, which actually makes spreading an important message all over the globe pretty convenient. But one of the drawbacks of being in a non-Christian community, a non-Christ-centered community, is that not only are there lots of unsaved folks with diverse backgrounds and beliefs, but even the believers began to succumb to some of the worldliness around them, some of whom even began teaching false Gospels. So Paul wrote to Titus to remind him of the true gospel, that no amount of money or power or prayer or service gets you into the kingdom of God. It's only by submission to Christ through faith and by God's grace that we can become children of God. So Paul is writing to Titus to give him some advice. See, Titus is the pastor of a church. So Paul's writing to him to say, here's how I want you to lead your church. Here's some advice. Oh, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm doing. Here's some direction on how to lead the people in the community that you're leading. He began reminding Titus of their calling to ministry. Then he told Titus that he needed to raise up biblically qualified elders so that they can confront false teachers and guide their people well. He said that he needed to train his elders so he could confront false teaching and those deceived by false teaching and raise up his people to live the Christian life well. So I want to reiterate one of the things I said last week. 
One of the most common forms of false teaching today falls into what we refer to as prosperity theology. This is the idea that if I have enough faith, if I pray enough, if I give God enough of my money, he will save me, heal me, or give me what I want. God is not a genie. God does not owe you anything. He cannot and will not be swayed to do your will because you give him a little bit more money than the person next to you. That's not how God works. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? Nobody gets to the Father except through him. Anything, you, anything else that you think might get you into heaven is a false savior. So I was looking, up, looking at that over the last couple of weeks, this false teaching stuff. And every time Paul writes a letter to a, in one of his pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, uh, Jude, another one. But every, every time he writes a letter specifically to a pastor, he addresses false teaching, which means it's a big deal. He then goes on, from, he goes from teach the gospel, raise up elders, confront false teaching, to the character stuff. And we talked about that too. He wanted to give Titus a kind of a to-do, how to raise up, how to tell your people to live, how they should live to honor Christ, that sort of thing. He's getting to the point that as believers saved by grace through, or sorry, by faith through grace, we should be living differently. We should look different than the unbelievers in our community. And then he would go on again to communicate the true gospel, reinforce the idea that we as believers are to be blameless, deny worldly lusts, and focus on right living for Christ. By no means is Titus a lovey-dovey, feel-good letter. You, don't, you can't really read Titus and walk away, man, I'm doing great. I have this Christian thing down. God is so impressed by my life. Because it forces us to know what we believe. It has a couple of those difficult verses to understand. Difficult verses to be like, ooh, that doesn't quite fly with our world today. But it forces us to know what we believe, to be able to defend those beliefs. He talks about handling confrontation. You have to be able to confront false teachers and confront those who have been deceived, which means you better be able to handle being confronted if somebody comes up to you about your beliefs. He says we need to change the way that we live to honor Christ, which means denying every fiber of our being that says, you do you. Do whatever leads to your success. No, we need to submit to Christ's authority, no longer seeking power and control for ourselves, our agenda, or our desires, but Christ's agenda for his kingdom. Now, that's not to say you can't ask God for what you want, but don't be upset if he says no or not yet. Paul wraps up the letter by telling Titus, hey, you're doing great. You deserve a cookie. No, he doesn't. That would be nice, though, right? Because the first couple chapters are pretty tough. It would have been nice to, for Paul to take it easy on Titus and just a few years later, take it easy on us. But he didn't. Uh, he spits a little bit more hard truth, which I think is important. I, uh, just my personal opinion. I think we have enough coddling in the church. Let's, uh, let's dive into some hard truth this morning. All right. Oh, actually, I lied. We're not going there yet. We'll get to the Bible in a second. 
because I was reading this. Uh, I've been talking these last few weeks about these commentary series I found. Uh, they're called Christ-Centered Exposition. Um, I am not, I like to say, I'm dumber than a box of rocks. So when it gets into some weighty theology and some really thick stuff, I start to sleep. Um, but these commentaries are really phenomenal. They break up a small section of Scripture. Um, and then at the end, they give you some questions to work through because I really need someone else helping me to process. So phenomenal stuff. And they're geared towards pastors, but anybody, if you're looking for a, a deeper Bible study, but not like a bunch of these and thous. Christ-centered exposition, they're like 10, 15 bucks a piece. And they have them for a lot of the books of the Bible. Anyway, we digress. Nicodemus was a respected religious leader in the first century. He was both a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the nation of Israel. He was devoutly religious, theologically well-educated, and held in the highest esteem by those who knew him. He was, by any standard of measure measurement, a good man. However, visiting the young itinerant rabbi from Galilee one evening after dark, he was shocked to hear that he was not ready to enter the kingdom of God. What reason did Jesus give him? He had never been born from above. He had never, oh, that's the worst. My book just closed. He had never been born again. That's all I got memorized. Hey, there we are. He had never experienced the miracle of new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit, or the work of the Spirit of God, the Bible calls regeneration. Millard Erickson defines regeneration as the other divine side of conversion. It is completely God's doing. It is God's transformation of individual believers. His giving a new spiritual vitality and direction to their lives when they accept Christ. It involves something new, a whole reversal of the person's natural tendencies. In other words, it is new birth for a new life. So as I was initially studying this third chapter of Titus, I really understood it as being directed toward our interactions with unbelievers. A couple translations actually have that subtitle, Christian's interacting with unbelievers or living with unbelievers. But, and that's based on three, chapter, or verse 3, I'll get to that in a minute. But although some think Paul wanted Titus to have his believers understand this in regard to their interactions with believers. Like, um, so we'll dive in and let you be the judge, I guess. The whole, let God be the judge, really. But uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful detesting one another. So I believe this is the part where Paul is telling Timothy how to interact, or Titus, sorry. Anytime I say Timothy, it's Titus. I'll say that a lot. It's the, yeah, the, whatever. Two similar names. He couldn't have found two different named disciples, whatever. But this is the part where I believe he is talking about our interactions with unbelievers. And then here in a minute, we'll switch to the believer-to-believer -believer stuff. But submit to authority, 
obey and be ready for every good work. Don't slander, avoid fighting, and be kind and gentle for. We talked about that word last week. For. We were once pretty rotten people. Submit to authority, be ready for every good work, obey, don't slander, avoid fighting, and be gentle and kind because we were rotten. We were dead in our sins. We were separate. We were apart from God. This is why I think these first few verses are directed towards unbelievers. Because Paul is telling us to behave a certain way for we were once lost too. So do good works, be kind and gentle. Prove that you're saved by the way you behave. Like we said, the only way into the kingdom of God is through Christ. You can't do enough good works to get your ticket, but there will be fruit of our salvation. This is the regenerative new birth that Paul talks about. Good works don't earn your salvation, but they prove your salvation. You're a disciple of Christ, so you should be living differently than those around you. And it shows through your interactions with unbelievers. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are God's worksmanship created in Christ for good works, which God has prepared for us ahead of time to do. See, Paul was convinced that our new birth would be evident by new life, a life full of good works. Paul wrote Ephesians 2, so good works, he's talking about this a lot. So good works are important. They don't save us, but they flow from those of us who are saved. And verse 1 echoes the shared idea throughout the New Testament that we are to submit to governing authorities. We are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Unless it brings us to direct disobedience to God's commands, we are to submit to our authorities. Last week I talked about, actually every week, I talk about my discipleship community on practical discipleship. By the way, if you're looking for a class on how to make disciples, I just happen to have a class right now at 10 o'clock in R3 on making disciples. Anyway. But in my class last week, uh, and I might even have mentioned it in my message, I don't remember. But we talked about Paul and his letter to the Roman church. He was writing about his obligation to serve both Jew and Gentile. And because he was obligated, he was eager. That's become uh, one of my favorite phrases to talk about ministry. I am obligated, therefore I am eager. Does that describe your personal ministry? Does that describe how you interact with believers, interact with unbelievers? You're obligated to serve, so you're eager to serve? Let's take a step back and evaluate. I always say we need to be in a constant state of evaluation. And in everything, in our jobs, in our relationship with God, in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids, we need to be in a constant state of evaluation. So let's uh, evaluate our interactions and our beliefs regarding unbelievers. First, The scripture says we need to submit to authority, obey, be ready for good work, slander no one, avoid fighting, and always be kind, showing gentleness to all people. So let's break that down. How is your submission to authority? We are not diving into this one. 
with the landscape of the world and the limited amount of time we have today. But are you rebellious in nature? Are you politically scrappy and divisive? I am. Not necessarily so much divisive, but boy, oh boy, can I get scrappy when someone wants to talk politics. But I, had, I have dealt with a ton of conviction over these last couple years, and God has brought some humility. <laughs> so are you scrappy and divisive, or are you a peacemaker? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers in the Beatitudes. Are you seeking to win arguments, or are you seeking to win souls? Are you, are you seeking and striving for peace in all things, or, or are you somewhere in the middle? What about slandering unbelievers? Do you make false claims about somebody? Do you make assumptions about, oh, they believe that, so they must believe this, which means they're the spawn of Satan? Maybe a little bit of an extreme there. Slander's sneaky. It's just like gossip. Gossip is sneaky, too. But sometimes we slander without really wanting, wanting to slander or even really knowing what we're doing. But when we talk about slander, we have to talk about defamation. Have you intentionally spread lies? Maybe we don't like the word lie. It's too strong. Mistruth, false information, unverified fact, fake news, fibs about somebody in order to change their opi- someone else's opinion about that person. How do you speak about unbelievers, atheists, agnostics? Do you share the truth in love or do you share the truth aggressively trying to smother them with Scripture in order to suffocate them with our Savior? Church, that's not the way to do it. What about people from different faith communities? How do you treat, how do you talk about Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, whatever? Do you treat them, talk about them in love? Or do you try to beat them with the Bible? We don't live in too diverse of a community, but we still encounter different faith communities, different belief systems and structures in Clare County, in Gladwin County, in Isabella County. How do you speak about people from different faith communities? And I know y'all love it when I bring up politics. Um, But how do you speak about unbelievers on the other side of the aisle? Right, left, moderate, whatever. How do you speak about unbelievers in the other side? Do you talk about them like Jesus would talk about them? How Paul would talk about them? How do you speak about folks unbelieving folks who identify to be a part of the LGBTQ community. What about alcoholics or drug addicts, people in prison, people who've abandoned their families, people so far away from the church that you don't even see them as people, but simply as sinners? How do you speak about those people? And how did Jesus speak about those people? Because Jesus didn't refer to them as those people. He referred to them as friend. He referred to them as dinner buddies. Maybe you're thinking, you know, Hunter, I have some opinions, but I don't speak bad about anybody. At least 
not to their face. What about your thought life? What do you think about the politically opposite, the different faith communities, different sin, whatever? So Jesus says, if we hate somebody in our hearts, we've already committed murder. So this past week, have you killed anyone with your thoughts? See, Jesus also said that we need to love our enemies and care for those who persecute us. That means not just not speaking poorly of your enemies, but going out of your way to care for them. Not just saying Jesus loves you, but being the hands and feet of Jesus. Think of those groups I just mentioned. When's the last time you went out of your way to physically care for somebody in one of those groups? To actually bless them? So after not slandering or fighting, which we're probably all doing really good. I, you guys are probably fine. You don't do any of that. Paul says we're to be kind and gentle to unbelievers. Does that express your interactions with anyone from those groups? Are you kind to everyone? Are you gentle with them? When you're sharing the truth and love like we're supposed to, do you do it in a gentle way? Or is it hellfire and brimstone, figure it out, or good luck? Do you in humility love and care for your enemies or do you, as my buddy Bill Shakespeare would say, bite your thumb at them? Yeah, I read Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Maybe you were like how I get sometimes and in some suppressed prideful way you just think that you're superior to others. Shocker, that's still sin and you still have to repent for that. Just because pride is sneaky, subtle, and can be behind the scenes, and you might be able to hide it, doesn't mean that it's not still sin and you still need to repent for it. Paul writes, so that we aren't too quick to forget how rotten we are in and of ourselves, how rotten we are without Christ. See, as believers, we have been born again. We've experienced this regeneration, this new birth. But all too often we get comfortable and we get a little prideful. And we forget our natural depravity. We forget that we are indeed lost and dead in our sin without Christ. Charles, Charles Spurgeon reminds us, oh man, I love the Spurge. Do not let me talk about these things this morning. He was doing a sermon on Titus. Do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling. I want you to be turning over the pages of your old life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our sad confession of former pleasure in evil. We all have former pleasure in evil. And nothing we did got us out of it. We're all still tempted occasionally to indulge in those former evils. Don't forget that it was Christ, not you, who rescued you from your past sin. Did I, have I ever told you guys that right now I'm teaching a class in the back on discipleship? Oh, all right. Um, but anyway, last week we talked about understanding your story and the power your story has in evangelism and discipleship um, and how we need to take time to actually think about how God has changed us through our life. And so I shared my story and discussed the process of 
How do we do that? How do we understand our story as our most powerful evangelistic and discipleship tool? So our individual faith stories, the story of how God has saved us and changed us, is incredibly powerful. For some, I'm not saying that it's 100% more powerful than Scripture, but for some, your testimony is more powerful as an evangelistic tool than Scripture. Now, you can't do it without Scripture, right? You need Scriptures. And theoretically, you would weave Scripture throughout your sharing of your story. But for an unbeliever who doesn't believe this Bible is true, will believe that transformation is true. I was having a conversation with someone a few months ago. Unbeliever, family member, totally radically changed by Christ. And they kept talking about, and something happened at that church. You know, something, I, I'm missing something. I, I just see this transformation in them. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't know how I feel about all that, but I'm missing something. That person's testimony, that person's life change was more of an evangelistic tool than the ancient text that this person didn't believe in. And now that person is a believer because of the evangelistic nature of the story and then getting them into church and then God did all the rest. Don't underestimate the power of your story. But I'm not here to talk about, you should have been to class last week. If you weren't there, sorry about it. But we were all born needing Jesus. There was a point in which we were not saved. And we all still need Jesus. Um, I love the, there's a a TikTok thing. It's a kid thing. I'm not really on TikTok, but I know about it. Uh, It's a video thing, video social media. And anyway, it says something to the effect of, yo, do I need Jesus to do this? And the guy says, yo, you need Jesus to go to Walmart. I'm like, true that. We all need Jesus. Paul says, Spurgeon reiterates that we need to remember how sinful we once were if we are to truly understand our need for this regenerative new birth. And once we understand our need, we will start to see the lost like Jesus did. So Paul highlights six ways we're all captivated by sin. Sin deceives. Sin disobeys. Sin dictates. So sin makes us think that it's okay. It's deceptive. It has no rules, no guidelines. Tricky, it disobeys, and it dictates. It starts to get a little bit of control over our lives, and then we become the puppet. And then it detests those people, that group. Sin desires. We want. So it's America, I can do what I want. I'm a free citizen. I'm going to do that. Oh, nobody will know. It's just, it's just me here. Sin desires. And then finally, sin destroys. Those six ways that sin takes us captive describe how we once were, but through Christ we've been regenerated. Paul was a man of many reminders, but most, the most important reminder he gives in this letter is found in verses 4 through 7. So if you would. But when the kindness of God our Savior... And his love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not by works of righteousness we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, 
we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Church, this is the gospel. The kindness of God and his love for mankind saved us. Not by your works of righteousness, not by your prayer, not by your good behavior, not by your church attendance or your tithe, not your involvement in the children's ministry, although you serve with the children's ministry. I think that's jewels in your crown or something like that. But by his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. God poured the Holy Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ so that we could become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Church, God doesn't need us to do anything. He's all-powerful and in total control, and he could very easily accomplish his plans without us. But here's the crazy part. He wants us. He wants to use us, and all of us, and every part of us. That's why Paul, or that's why God gives us guidelines on how to treat people who believe differently than us. Because he doesn't want us to be distracted. Because he doesn't want us to push them away. Church, we lose absolutely nothing by being kind, gentle, and obedient. And ready to do every good work toward unbelievers. But we risk losing everything if we slander, fight, disobey, divide, and rebel. All right, we're going to continue with verse 8. Paul writes, This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that, so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. This gospel is trustworthy. This God is trustworthy. Insist on these things so that those who believe don't get distracted. So they don't lose sight of the prize, eternity with God. Insist on these things so they themselves, as disciples, commit to the mission of Christ. So that they may devote themselves to good works. And these good works are good and profitable for everybody. We will make a far greater impact for the kingdom of God if we stop condemning sin and start loving sinners. I'll say that again because I didn't see anybody writing that down. We will make a far greater impact for the kingdom of God if we stop condemning sin and start loving sinners. And then I think these next few verses are where it changes from our interactions with unbelievers to our interactions with believers. So 9 through 11 reads, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after the first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. What's the context here? So Paul just got done communicating the gospel, stating that this is why we are here. So in light of the gospel, Paul says, avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law. 
because they are unprofitable and worthless. Church, within our family, we love foolish debates. We love quarrels and disputes about the law. Church, when we continually argue and quarrel and fight, we divide. When we continually argue, quarrel, and fight, whether we intend to or not, whether we want to or not, we divide. And Paul doesn't pull punches regarding the individual that instigates these debates, quarrels, and arguments. Warn them once, warn them twice, then reject them. Four. There's that word again. That's like the fourth or fifth time in this book, in this letter. Paul says that this person has condemned themselves. They've gone astray. They're sinning. Reject them. Church, if you encounter this person, correct them. If someone comes up to you and gossips and slanders and is seeking to cause division in the church, confront them. We talked about that last week. Go home and read Matthew 18, 15 through 20. It talks about how to confront somebody biblically. And it starts with, if your brother sins against you. Which means if you just got a different opinion, you don't get to like confront them. But if it's a sin problem, then you get to confront them. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Biblical conflict resolution. See, our responsibilities as brothers and sisters in Christ as a part of the church, is to maintain unity. If somebody is doing this, bringing up foolish debates, disputing and quarreling, address it. I don't care if you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. You come across it, you address it. Address it biblically, first with one person, then if it continues with a few people, then if it continues further with the elders. I was just a summary of Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Go home and read it for yourself. The key word here is foolish. Paul isn't saying we can't discuss things. We can't debate things. We are a bunch of different people with varying backgrounds. Differences in opinions and understanding will happen. We we need to be able to have these confrontations and have these conversations. But the second sin is involved, gossip is involved, slander is involved, foolishness is involved. And Paul says, get it out. He says, when it becomes foolish, it becomes distracting from the gospel of Christ, and that person needs to be addressed. If they don't get it the first time, go to them a second time. If they don't get it a second time, get them out. That's church discipline, and that conversation is above my pay grade. So we are going to wrap up by reading Titus 12 through 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort... To come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey, so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. See, Paul wraps up his letter by saying, Titus, I'm going to send you some backup. I'm going to either send Artemis or Tychicus. They're going to show up. They're going to help you out. Just like anytime we, we haven't talked to somebody 
in a while. We talk to him. We give him an update on life. Paul says, yeah, I'm going to be here in the winter. I want you to come see me. Make sure to help these guys out, Zenos and Apollos. And then he reiterates for one final time the importance of the church being the hands and feet of Jesus. Let our people devote themselves to the good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. I read a story on Twitter this week. A pastor, I believe he's down in Florida, had somebody, a conversation with a lady in his church that had just been coming a few weeks. Uh, older lady. And she lived alone. She didn't have any family. And he said, well, what, what's going on in life? How are you doing? And she's like, well, I'm, she was in a wheelchair. She's like, well, I'm really struggling. I'm waiting on the, the local government to, they're supposed to be building me a ramp for my house and helping me with some of the handicap accessibility stuff in my house. And I've been waiting since March. And he said, that's unacceptable. He's like, can I get your contact information and we'll have, we want to build you a ramp. And she's like, you guys do that here? And he's like, well, we got a few handy guys at the church, and that's like being the hands and feet of Jesus. They outfitted her entire house for everything she needed to make her house handicap accessible. That is meeting the pressing needs of the church. That is doing good works for the church. So, first, how do, we, how do we get to do this? How do we master this? Well, first, we need to understand the true gospel of Christ. No more of this false gospel stuff. No more of this um, false savior or functional saviors. The gospel of Christ must be the gospel that we are living out. And if it's not, we need to correct those beliefs. We need to correct our false motives. And whatever else is getting in the way of us understanding the gospel of Christ. That's the foundation. If you've got a bad foundation, I'm not handy at all. But my understanding is, if your house does not have a good foundation, pretty quick, you're not going to have a house. Right? Is that right? Anybody construction? Yeah? All right, sweet. Nobody said yeah, but that's okay. Understand your foundation and make the appropriate adjustments. I was going to buy a house in Firewall a few years ago, and I walked in the basement, and like the concrete foundation was like falling and I'm like I feel like that's a bad sign so they said oh but you can just repair it so if you have a bad foundation apparently if in your house you can fix it so in your spiritual life I promise you you can fix it just replace the false teaching with good teaching the bad people in your lives the false teachers in your lives with good teachers positive reinforcement then we need to get to work Fix the foundation and then get to work maintaining and updating the house. In the way we treat unbelievers, in our interactions, in our attitude, in the way we love people, those are our good works toward the lost. And then in the way we interact with one another here at the church, focusing primarily on furthering the gospel, being the hands and feet of Jesus in unity as we follow Christ. These are are our good works toward the kingdom. In all things, focus first and foremost on the gospel of Christ and expanding the kingdom of God through that gospel. Let's pray. God, you are so good. We, don't even, we can't even wrap our mind. We say that all the time, but 
We don't even see everything you're doing. We just see everything you're doing in and around us. But God, this is a massive world, and you're doing stuff all over the globe, and we're just so thankful for that. God, it's really hard sometimes to live out the truth of the gospel, to submit to Christ as our authority, and to do what Paul charges us in loving our neighbors, being kind and gentle to unbelievers. It's just hard to be the hands and feet of Jesus, especially if our foundation is wrong, is false, is, is breaking and falling apart. So God, I just pray that we can evaluate our foundation, make the appropriate changes, and then get to work for you. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that you together may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.